Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. It seems that the public sector is under attack from all directions these days. Despite historically low public financing costs, despite proven efficiency and innovation, the public sector gets a bad rap in the public eye. And that's something all manner of politicians, from hardened right-wingers to cosmopolitan neoliberals, take advantage of, letting markets further seep into the very functioning of health, education, and other basic services. I have two guests today to talk about the threats to public services and how to combat them. First up, Chris Parsons, coordinator of the Nova Scotia Health Coalition, talks to me about the problems with public-private partnerships, P3s, and takes us on a tour of bungled P3 school projects in Nova Scotia. Second, Adrian Shunitsky, the national coordinator of the Canadian Health Coalition, discusses the state of public health care in Canada, both the threats from the private sector and the ways to fight for a better public system. Here's my conversation with Chris Parsons. So Chris, first off, maybe you could just introduce the idea of public-private partnerships or P3s as they're commonly called uh, to listeners. What, uh, what are these schemes are all about? Well, uh, in Nova Scotia, we've, some of us have been attempting to, uh, in some ways, actually stop using the term P3 or public-private partnerships, because at the heart of it, it's a marketing term. And it's a marketing term in a few different ways. I mean, one of them is that in, in the very name, uh, public-private partnership, it's attempting to make it sound like, like it's a partnership rather than one side taking advantage of the other. Um, and in fact, the latter is the case. Uh, the other thing is the term P3 in some ways is also the kind of technical term uh, that is often used to, uh, to make people not want to dig into the details of it. Um, but beyond that, one of the problems with P3 partnerships or these sort of private funding schemes is that they actually encompass a whole lot of different processes and different types of deals. Uh, and that the term P3 is used to apply to all of them, usually through industry associations. Uh, what, basically what these things have in common though is that it's deals that sort of uh, the state either through um, municipal government, provincial government or federal government, that, that they enter into a deal with uh, private companies to where the private company takes uh, over the process of um, one aspect of funding and financing the project, of um, constructing it, of managing it after it's built, of the design process, um, usually some combination of all of those. Now, even in sort of traditional, traditionally built projects in the public sector, uh, the construction is often done through a contracted company. But in the case of P3s, um, often what happens is sort of one company will come in or one group of companies will come in and bid on the whole process and they'll go from the design and architecture um, to, uh, you know, finding financing for it all the way through to, in many cases, taking on some sort of uh, degree of management or maintenance contract after it's completed. Uh, and that can range from everything from having an exclusive contract for um, maintenance services or food services in a public building to uh, just simply, you know, overseeing uh, the maintenance or uh, a lot being allowed to have some input on, on who, who maintains them. Uh, and these are, this is part of the problem with P3s. They actually encompass, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different, um, different sort of ways of funding or ways of financing rather uh, public infrastructure. So they're used usually in schools, hospitals, uh, 407 highway uh, in Ontario is an example that folks probably be familiar with. Um, but at the heart of it, it's a way for the, the private sector to figure out a way to make money off of public infrastructure. Uh, and at the same time, the public lose 
a fair deal of control over it, uh, that infrastructure while still paying for it. Yeah, and I know, I know in Nova Scotia, I mean, I want to get to two things. There's, there's the sort of problems with, with P3s, and I guess we could kind of divide them, or I think you can divide them, I mean, you can divide them lots of ways. Um, one is a simple kind of two-way division into one, the funding problems and the fact that, as you said, you know, part of the costs of these projects end up being the cost of the profits of the private contractors. Um, so all the things that have to do with finance and, and, and the fact that although they're sold is a good deal, they're often not. And another problem having to do with the quality of the services afterwards and whether they're adequate. Um, I mean, maybe we can talk a bit about some specifics with those, with those things uh, around some of your experiences in Nova Scotia with, with these schemes. I know there's been a bunch in terms of both schools and healthcare. I don't know which one you'd like to go into a bit more. Um, I think starting, I think thinking about it chronologically is a good way to help. Um, and I think um, schools are the place where, public schools are the place where Nova Scotia has had the most experience so far, whereas healthcare is where we see um, problems coming on the horizon. I think one thing to think about it that I think is really important um, is, is to think sort of historically about where P3s come from. Uh, in a lot of ways, they're a response to um, some of the crises created by um, you know, people often talk about it as neoliberalism, um, divide them, use that term. The more flexible form of capitalist accumulation that begins taking place um, sort of after the decline of uh, sort of the, the Fordist system, right? So what you, what you end up with is um, sort of more flexible form of accumulation that uh, is devolving, in some ways devolving powers from the states, but actually is transforming the state um, in order to meet the needs of, of the market. And uh, Heather Whiteside, who's a political scientist, uh, who's one of the best sources on P3s in Canada, she, I think, has, has pointed out something that's really important, which is that uh, P3s don't simply sell off public assets. What they're actually doing is uh, they're creating an avenue for privatization and profit generation and capital accumulation within the state itself. So it's actually about the transformation of the state. And so what happens uh, and where these come from, particularly the, the current sort of breed of P3s, um, they emerged in 1992 through the private finance initiative in England uh, and quickly exported elsewhere. In England, uh, they're introduced by the conservatives, but they they basically get ramped up even harder under Blair and sort of uh, new labor. Uh, but in Canada, they're used in part, uh, they begin being used by provinces, largely as a response to the, the new rhetoric um, and the new normal around deficits uh, that, that's brought around really by sort of the liberal government and its social policy review in the mid-1990s, uh, and then sort of the various forms that that takes provincially with Harris in Ontario, with uh, Sa the Savage government in Nova Scotia. And in Nova Scotia, what happens is, is that uh, there's essentially uh, deals made to try to construct 39 new schools. Uh, and because of this sort of hysteria around the deficit and this belief that we need to, to slash spending at all costs at the same time as we're actually, you know, declining our revenue base yeah. uh, in Nova Scotia was, I guess it's both deficit deficit and debt as well. Right. That like, I mean, the two are related, but it's a, it's immediate deficits right now. And then long-term sort of public debt, debt panics. Right. Yeah, I think it, exactly. I think it's both. And I think that that's actually an important distinction um, because it, it's not just enough to make sure that we're not running a deficit. Now we also have to be obsessed with the concept of what uh, the public debt will look like down the road. 
Um, and so what happens is, is that they introduce um, this sort of, they've got to build 39 new schools. Because the other thing that happens in the 1990s is that all of this infrastructure that was built uh, during the emergence of the Canadian welfare state after the Second World War, by the 1990s, uh, that infrastructure needs to start getting replaced, right? So you've got this confluence of events where you've got a bunch of schools uh, that need to be replaced because of increasing population, but also old schools falling apart. Uh, and so they turn to this model of P3s, which are sort of in vogue uh, in England. In England, there's an appearance at the time that this is going to be successful, even though, uh, you know, particularly trade unions there, uh, but also trade unions in Canada and I have been were sounding the alarm at that time. So they introduced these sort of 39 schools um, that were built, uh, and they seek various different uh, partners to build them. So in Nova Scotia's case, they didn't have 39 schools and find one partner to build all of them. They hired various companies, most of whom were well-connected property developers who are involved in private property development in Nova Scotia. Um, there were some outside companies that were brought in as well. And so in 1997, they built, uh, they begin construction on 39 new schools. Um, so what ended up happening with these schools is a series of different problems. I mean, the first and foremost problem is that they cost about uh, $700 million total to build, um, or at least for the government. The government paid $700 million. But of that amount, about $300 million of it uh, actually ended up being interest that was paid uh, on the contracts rather than the actual principal of it. Um, and in addition, uh, they, the schools weren't actually owned after the contracts were up. So those contracts became, uh, or the leases uh, ended this past summer. Um, and... Uh, it's going to end up costing the province, um, well, the province has already spent about $149 million buying uh, 29 of those schools back, and 10 of them, it looks like they're not going to renew. So in addition to the fact that we spent you know, $700 million up front, uh, we're spending another $150 million to buy schools that were already paid for. But there was also problems when those schools were actually being used. Uh, amongst them were the fact that at some of those schools, for example, um, some of the contracts allowed for the private managers of it to uh, rent, for example, the gymnasium space or the field space out separately. So school teams actually had to uh, had to compete with outside companies in order to use their gym. It's perfect. Right? Introducing sort of the the logic of competition right, you know, right in the youth, right, right in the early years. It's like an I added mean, bonus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an, an important aspect of sort of the new education, right? It's like this is, you know, it was the early 2000s equivalent of teaching everyone to code, right? Um, in that sense. Uh, but there was also, I think, a way in which um, there, there were other more subtle things that happened. So, for example, a lot of those property developers were, you know, building schools on land that they owned, but they also owned all the parcels nearby, right? So one of the things that happens in those cases is, is that it's a slam dunk for those developers because they can build subdivisions and they can sell them to young families saying like, there's a brand new school that's going to be opening at the same time as you're purchasing the house. Right. And, and anyone who's ever, uh, who's anything with real estate knows that one of the first things that families ask when they're buying a house is, uh, they ask about the school system. Right. So you end up having developers being able to take money on that side, as well as, um, oftentimes you know, they had control over maintenance contracts, um, which allowed them to circumvent, for example, uh, existing union, unions. Um, they were able to, to contract out. Uh, and so this was used in a lot of cases to break the unions as well. Uh, so the schools ended up being, in a lot of ways, kind of a disaster. Uh, they were a disaster because they cost more. They're, they were a disaster because um, they were intended to actually keep the money off the books, but changes in public accounting rules meant that um, by you know the late 1990s into the early 2000s, the rules that allowed this basically not appear as, as money in the books uh, changed so that uh, when it came to public accounting, 
those infrastructure bills did in fact appear uh, on the budget line. And so they didn't actually help reduce uh, the appearance of a deficit or debt. Um, but the other thing that I think is sort of a, a funny irony is, is that this was introduced by uh, the Savage Liberal government uh, in the late 1990s with the goal of, in a lot of ways, sort of a political expediency of allowing the liberals to claim that they're the ones who managed to build schools without adding money to the debt. Um, and, you know, the liberals were out of power for, um, you know, a solid decade and a half almost. And they came back in power two years before these schools became, became uh, you know, a liability again because the contracts were up and they had to pay $150 million in order to actually buy these schools that they previously uh, had hoped were not going to be the problem of, of successive liberal governments. And that's also, I think, an important uh, aspect of it, too, is just the degree to which uh, this you know, $150 million uh, that they spent to buy the schools this year came at the exact same time that they were in negotiations with um, the public school teachers who have rejected three contract offers from this government. Um, and, you know, as we speak now, uh, they were supposed to be in the process of being legislated back to work and having a contract imposed on them before they could even have the potential to strike. Uh, but a snowstorm's delayed that. So there's this way in which we're being told that there's no money for payment for uh, teachers on a new contract or no money to reduce class sizes. Well, in fact, there has been money that over the last uh, you know, decade, two decades really almost, uh, has been transferred into the private sector in the form of profits. So that's, that's kind of the story of the schools in Nova Scotia. Yeah, um, it, it, it really yeah. sort of comes, comes full circle, as you said, and especially visible in this, in this contract dispute, which again, it's, you know, it's being made out to be all about money. It's funny how the deficit, you know, the problem of overspending, um, is a problem sometimes and then and at other times you know it's just the cost of doing business right absolutely and, and in nova scotia as well there was another large project the other the most recent p3 project was the creation of a convention center where essentially um the province the federal government the municipal government chipped in a total of 250 million dollars to a private developer to build a, a convention center that no one wants in downtown halifax and it's uh close to two years it's looking like it's gonna be about two years uh overdue. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, the province or the provincial crown corporation that runs it is going to be leasing the bottom two floors, but the hotel that's being built on top of it, that is going to get all of the convention business, uh, all the sort of room sales from the, the convention conventions that are taking place. Uh, that hotel space is owned by the private developer who's going to make money off that. And, you know, the, the final irony of it is, is that the Federal Liberals recently announced that uh, they're going to be holding their 2018 uh, federal convention in that very convention center. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, liberal fingerprints are unfortunately all over a, these things. A little too perfect. Um, you, you mentioned that that you, that there's some healthcare P3 sort of on the horizon. It seems like the Liberals, uh, at least provincially, haven't learned the the lesson from this. Is is that the case, or, or are these just things that? Are there any sort of concrete plans to go that route in the in the healthcare sector in Nova Scotia, or or have those been sort of put on hold by this school fiasco? Um, so one one of the things that's happening here is that there's been uh, for about five years now there's been talk of replacing the Centennial Building at the old Victoria General Hospital site, which is one of the major hospitals in downtown Halifax. Um, January of this year, uh, there was an announcement that. Uh, the Department of Infrastructure Renewal and Health and Wellness were seeking to bring in a consultant to essentially help them evaluate when to use uh, and what projects to use P3 financing models for. So they put out what's called a uh, request for service provider qualifications. 
And so this company is going to come in to essentially tell the government, like, these are the, the outline of when you should and should not use P3s and to help create basically a bid process. Uh, there's a couple of problems with that. I mean, the first one is, is that these companies um, don't, if they don't suggest the majority of the time that people use P3 models, then these companies don't get contracts to negotiate these things, right? The, the other problem, though, uh, beyond that is that the line from the department has been, they're only going to use P3s if it's a good deal. There's a, a faulty kind of like hilarious type of logic to this because sort of Throughout human history, everyone who's ever gotten ripped off has thought they're getting a good deal, right? Like you don't enter into a contract thinking you're getting ripped off. And what we do know is that on the whole, we saw it with the P3 schools here. We've seen it with uh, all the P3 infrastructure uh, programs in Ontario. We've seen with it with the vast corruption that has plagued the system uh, in the UK where these were pioneered. What we see now is that there actually is overwhelming evidence that while individual projects may occasionally end up uh, delivering a decent uh, product that on the whole, these are bad deals for the government. And that furthermore, the government has no way and the consultants that hires has no way of determining in which cases these are good projects and in which cases these are bad projects. And part of the problem that I pointed to at the very beginning when I was talking about the difficulty in defining P3s is that they use this loose definition by saying that like, oh no, we're not going to use the same type of P3 financing that we did for the schools. We're going to use a better one. Um, and so they use the sort of mutability of the term to evade any of the negatives that come with it while still trying to lay claim to what they view as positives, even though those positives have been widely debunked. So, so I mean, I guess a, f- a final question is how, how do you fight this and how have you been fighting it in Nova Scotia? Um, what are some of the broader points, especially if, as you point out, it's you know, it's it's such a mutable, murky kind of thing. It's it's a sort of technical thing. You know, you start talking to people about private finance, whatever. You know, it, it it's a hard conversation to have because people's eyes glaze over, and that's a very natural reaction. And I mean, and because these projects are so implicated in a larger sort of ideology, right? A, a larger sort of picture of governmentality that been building for 30 40 years um what what are you doing what can we do to sort of chip away at this and and change the consensus around this i mean i think it's a project fighting back and this is a project that has to happen at various levels right so um i think one thing that you know there are some things that labor in canada has gotten organized labor has gotten wrong or that sometimes it's behind the curve when it comes to sort of the, the broader left um, P3s are not one of those things. Uh, la- organized labor was pointing to the problems of P3s in Canada before they were implemented in the mid-90s. The struggle, as you said, is how do we communicate this problem, right? And I think that to the general public, one of the challenges in the 1990s was that um, they were still new and that there wasn't a, pi- a pile of evidence that says that there's a problem with them, right? What, what evidence did exist was that in England, there were projects that people said couldn't be built using only public funds, they found this alternative form of financing in these projects that people said couldn't be built, got built. The advantage we have now is that we actually have overwhelming evidence that says that these projects haven't worked. So I I think we need to leverage that because every government has become obsessed with portraying itself as sort of evidence-based decision makers, right? There's this attempt to lay claim to being sort of uh, post-ideological, particularly the Liberal Party, but I think that 
strains of the Conservative Party, although that seems to be fracturing now. Um, but certainly the sort of center and the right of the NDP, that all of these governments claim that what they're doing is, is common sense. And that's sort of what a wider ideology produces is a common sense, right? Uh, and that common sense has been that we, we should leave these up to the, the market forces. And I think what we actually now do have is evidence, both locally and nationally and internationally, that these projects don't do what they say they would do. And I think that part of the, the fight, fighting back, particularly against the public, is to try to connect it to things that they understand. So, uh, you know, one of the things we have had some success with here, and we're, we're trying to, to ramp our campaigning up uh, at the Nova Scotia Health Coalition uh, with the possibility of you know, an election looming, is that um, there's the objection with the cost, right? I think that in the past, people have been hesitant to talk about the cost of P3s, but now that we now actually do have evidence that uh, it isn't actually a good deal for the provinces, that we, we continue to pay more at the provincial, federal, or municipal government when we use P3s and if we just finance them publicly. Um, but the other thing is that I think also resonate is, is one is a question of ownership, right? So in Nova Scotia, for example, we, um, we've built schools since the P3 debacle of the late 90s, and we've built them using sort of public, normal public financing methods, uh, issuing debt, right? and uh, managing them through the Department of Education or Departments of Infrastructure Renewal. Likewise, uh, the municipal government here built uh, a public library downtown that I have a few blocks from that has won numerous architecture awards and has actually become the sort of like central hub of the social life, particularly for young people in, in Halifax. There's uh, both high school students, but university students hanging out there. It hosts public events and it's, it's a beautiful public building. And it's a sort of public building uh, and the sort of beautiful architecture that ought to be ours by right as sort of people who live in the world. It shouldn't be reserved for, for only the rich. And I think that people, when you talk about schools, but also when you talk about hospitals and when you talk about libraries and these sorts of public buildings, they have an understanding and a pride of ownership, particularly in, in smaller communities. Um, you know, the schools aren't just places where their kids went. It's the place where they went. It's the place where their parents went. It's the, it's the place also where they, you know, have community meetings. It's a place where they have, you know, uh, you know, whatever, an annual fundraising event. And the same goes with hospitals. It's that people recognize these as places that they should have pride in. And they're in a lot of ways, particularly in smaller communities, defining aspects of the community. So one of the things we've attempted to point to is the fact that we need to have and continue to have full ownership over our public buildings. Uh, and I think that that does resonate with, with some people. And I think another thing that uh, is also really important is to, to talk about the degree to which these deals are not transparent. So one of the things that happens is that the actual terms of a lot of these deals, and this is one of the things that makes the studying of P3s a real challenge, uh, both for activists, but also academics, is that the actual terms of a lot of these deals are considered proprietary information. So people end up doing freedom of information requests and getting back, uh, you know, tons of blacked out information. There's, there's very few numbers in there. And pointing to that, the way that this actually is used by governments, not just to uh, create the appearance of not spending money, but also to avoid revealing the details of, of the deals that they're striking, I, I think is also an important aspect. And, and I think that we've seen some cases in Canada of pretty um, wild corruption around these. Uh, I think the McGill University uh, Hospital Center is the, the greatest example of this, um, where, uh, you know, the project uh, essentially has run, has run over cost. Um, and this April, um, you know, SNC-Lavalin, who's one of the uh, companies building it actually is suing uh, various levels of government for $330 million to cover uh, cost overruns. Uh, and this comes on the heels of the fact that SNC-Lavalin's former CEO, Pierre uh, Duchesne, is actually being charged uh, for allegedly paying bribes 
in order to win that contract in the first place. Uh, and that the former uh, executive of the McGill uh, University Hospital Center um, actually had to flee the country after it was revealed that he may have taken to, uh, $22.5 million in bribes and he fled the, co- the country to uh, Panama, where he ended up dying in prison um, while fighting extradition. And so this is like one of, this is a, you know, a massive, massive $2 billion project. Uh, and the cost overruns are, you know, the company that is responsible for the cost overruns and allegedly part of the reason why they're responsible for it is because the project was delayed because, the, you know, there had to be a massive corruption investigation into it. Uh, that company is suing for the cost overruns when the cost overruns and this transfer of risk is supposed to be one of the primary benefits of these P3 projects. So we think that pointing in some ways to, to this secrecy also is important because it gets back to this really primary question, which is a question of who should own, who should control, and who should benefit from investments by the public in public buildings. And we think that we need to be making an argument uh, to all Nova Scotians, all Canadians, that the public should benefit from it, that the average person should benefit from it, not wealthy corporations, not shareholders, um, and you know, not politicians who are just fighting to, to keep themselves in office and, and to hide the real costs of their projects. Uh, and I actually think that there's, uh, you know, in some ways also a, a second issue to this, which is that this is an issue that I think the broader Canadian left needs to begin trying to think about, um, because I think that this question on infrastructure is actually a really important battle. Um, you know, I think that the question of this sort of infrastructure bank that uh, is being intru- proposed by the Trudeau government, in some ways, it's amazing to me the degree to which um, the broader Canadian left has been fairly silent on hey. this. Right? <laughs> I would say that like you are, you are one of the few people who have really been carrying the torch on this. And I think that it's important work, right? I think that it's because it gets to the heart of this question of um, what transformations have actually taken place in political economy in Canada over the last several decades, right? And, and this issue that Whiteside has pointed out, that what this actually shows when we talk about P3s is we're not talking about the dismantling of the state. What we're talking about is a transformation of the state, a transformation of the state as a place, uh, not where, not simply to, to you know, uh, to regulate markets, but that the markets have been embedded deeply within the state itself, and that profit generation can happen not simply by um, devolving powers from the state or devolving responsibilities from the state, but actually taking those things the state is still responsible for, and subjecting them to market logics and subjecting them to the need to produce. Uh, a forum for capital accumulation. I think that these are important issues for, I think, a broader Canadian left to address. But I also think that it, it provides an opportunity, particularly when we start talking about this question of ownership, but also when we talk about the replacement of hospitals, uh, the replacement of schools, the replacement of um, of highways, that we're talking about uh, what's at stake here is people's jobs, but also people's senses of, sense of community. And I think that if, uh, if those of us who want to build a better, more just Canada actually care about that, that these are places that we need to be engaged in. I think that uh, weirdly something as uh, as opaque and specific and strange as how we finance things and whether we, you know, we use these P3 models or whether we issue debt or create some sort of other mechanism to do so, that, that this is actually, I think, one of the, the central questions for those of us who want to build this better world to actually try to engage in uh, and to try to organize around and, and to think through. That was Chris Parsons of the Nova Scotia Health Coalition. Next up, my conversation with Adrian Shinitsky, national coordinator of its national counterpart. We'll talk about the state of public health care in Canada. What's the biggest threat that you see to public health care in Canada today? You know, we, we hear a lot about 
how different we are from the U.S., especially in light of the debate there. Um, but we definitely face some some threats we can't be too complacent about our own system. No, absolutely not. I think profits are probably the biggest threat. Um, you know, more and more we're seeing the privatization of public health care and we're watching um, health care, public health care being taken out of hospitals, being taken um, into the hands of private corporations who want to make a profit off of it. And these are off of Canada's vulnerable people. They're, they are ill, um, our seniors. And I think that's where we're seeing uh, the biggest movement and the biggest shift in healthcare is is really a focus on making a profit off of people who need public health care. And are these sort of existing healthcare corporations, sort of the global ones that are trying to get in on this market? Is this a homegrown thing? I mean, we see these lawsuits like um, there's one in BC, the Dr. Day cases keep coming up. There's I know there's others in in other provinces, sort of who, who are the main forces that are sort of pushing for, um, for this bigger role for, for profit and the market in healthcare in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing it from all fronts. We're certainly seeing it, you know, in new trade agreements that are coming up where, uh, where pharmaceutical companies are pushing really hard to have patents delayed and lengthened so that they can have more shelf market time and delay the entry of generics into the market. Uh, we're seeing it in, you know, individuals like Dr. Day who are trying to be able to charge both the public health care system and patients for the same procedure uh, and make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The the latest audit on him was in a 30-day span, 500000 almost $500,000 billed illegally in, in extra fees. Um, and then we're seeing it uh, with corporations as well. There's a case right now that's being looked at that we've uh, applied for a, a an extension to the decision to the, and the timeline of the decision to be made uh, with a Chinese company who has always specialized in real estate and now wants to um, buy up our largest seniors care company in Canada called Retirement Concepts, who have homes in BC and um, in Alberta and in Quebec. And, uh, and they want to make a profit off of seniors. So we're seeing it on all fronts. We're seeing it globally. We're seeing it locally. We're seeing it by individuals. We're seeing it by mass corporations. And things like retirement concepts, is this, is this an area, you know, I, from what I understand, it's something like 70% of healthcare spending in Canada is done publicly, which in some ways is, I, I mean, it was somewhat surprising to me when I read this. I know there's, you know, things that are outside the public system, but what's, What's sort of already um, in in the private sphere in Canada in terms of healthcare? Yeah, so I mean, we have kind of a funny system, right? Where we've taken these pieces of our bodies and we've decided to remove them. So dental care uh, isn't considered public health care unless you know under under particular emergency situations where you can go to the hospital and receive some dental care. Eye care is usually not considered um, public and is very private. We're seeing more and more areas like physiotherapy becoming privatized. Um, in Saskatchewan recently, we've been seeing two-tiered MRIs where MRIs are now privatized. CT scans are going to become privatized there. Um, so all of these areas that we're sort of slowly seeing being moved out of the public system and becoming privatized and then areas that we've always had, mental health care is largely private um, across Canada. 
it differs in, in different provinces and territories. Um, more things are available in some provinces than available in others. And we see that particularly in seniors care. Uh, in some provinces, there's, uh, there are, there's many more beds available through the public system um, to have long-term care. And in other provinces and territories, it's mostly private um, beds that are available and people are paying upwards of five or $6,000 a month to stay in a long-term care home. And I, I imagine this ends up having uh, an impact on, on access and kind of, you know, social stratification in, in access to healthcare as well. Totally. So people and people are confused as well. So it certainly has, you know, some people just can't access the healthcare that they need. Some people can't afford it. Um, and then some people are confused and they don't know what they have to pay for and what they do and what they don't have to pay for, what's covered publicly, what's private. Um, and we're seeing a lot of misleading happening as well. So we're hearing of, you know, physicians who when people go in to get um, uh, cataract surgery and they need a new uh, a new lens that they're being told that they need to purchase a lens not knowing that there's a public one that's available to them um, so lots of areas where people are just very confused by this whole system and other areas where people simply can't afford the private care that may be their only option and and where's the where's the government on all of this I mean you know theoretically we'd like them to defend public health care. Um, what, I guess it's a two-part question, you know, what are individual provinces doing, doing about this and, and what's happening with the federal government? We, see, we saw this big disarray over the, uh, over the New Canada health transfer, these big um, lump sum transfers of health care funding to the provinces. What, what are the federal liberals doing here? It seems like they're kind of knocking off provinces one by one by attrition kind of so, so you can't get a united front that's right yeah it's they're totally dividing them. Um, it's really interesting because there are some hopeful things that we've seen from the federal government. So when the federal, when the new federal government took charge um, in 2015, we saw them join the Dr. Day case as defenders of public health care. Our previous government wasn't willing to do that. So that was a really hopeful sign. Um, in September of just this past year of 2016, we saw the federal government um, stand up to Quebec and send them a letter saying if they didn't end extra billing on medically necessary services, they would have the Canada Health Transfer clawed back. Uh, and, you know, we saw a lot of progress there with um, Quebec ending their auxiliary fees. We saw them send a similar letter to Saskatchewan saying that if Saskatchewan didn't end this new plan to create um, two-tiered MRIs, that they would claw back their Canada health transfers because they weren't abiding by the Canada Health Act. So really positive signals were being sent out. But unfortunately, when it comes to the dollars and cents of the issue, um, the federal government just isn't willing to give the money to the provinces and territories that they need in order to keep a public health care system sustainable and healthy and looking after everybody. And so the provinces and territories uh, are using a number. They're saying that the Canada health transfer must be at 5.2%. And that number comes from several external independent sources. It comes from the Parliamentary Budget Office. It comes from the Accountability Office. Um, so it's not just their number. And all of these offices are saying that if the provinces and territories receive less than 5.2% in the CHT escalator from the federal government, they won't be able to carry out the current basket of services that people are receiving today. So that's growth so of, that's annual growth of funding? That's right, yeah. So that's an annual growth, it's an annual escalator, and it needs to be 5.2%. Um, but when the negotiations came between the provinces and territories and the federal government, the federal government entered the negotiations with uh, the Canada, with 
GDP, so looking at nominal GDP with a floor of 3%. And then they, when the provinces and territories wouldn't accept that, they then offered 3.5% flat. But looking at the government's own indicators, GDP is supposed to grow by 4.1% in the next couple of years. So if they actually took the deal of 3.5, it was less money than was previously being offered to them. Uh, and so the provinces and territories rightly said no uh, when they were all sitting around the table together. And then a couple of days later, we hear that there's a crack. And New Brunswick is the first one to say, you know what, there's money now for mental health, there's some money for home care, and we're talking very small amounts of money. But in a province that's absolutely starved, that's having a difficult time um, affording, affording anything, but particularly public health care, to tell their constituents that they've turned down additional monies is a very difficult political position to take. And so they just had to accept it. And then we saw the same thing happen to Nova Scotia, and then the same thing happened to Newfoundland and Labrador. And then eventually, most recently, we saw PEI. And so we're looking at some of the provinces that are having the most difficult time um, being able to pay for public services, and they just couldn't tell their constituents no. And then we saw Saskatchewan, and that was a bit of a surprise. And then we heard out of the Saskatchewan government that that's because they made the secret deal where they could continue to violate the Canada Health Act by allowing to get MRIs without the federal government enforcing the Canada Health Act. And so without them clawing back the Canada Health Transfer from them. Now, we don't have verification of that. The federal government is saying that that's not the case and that's not the deal, but we don't have the text and they won't tell us what the deal was. So we're uncertain at this point. Um, but we are looking at some of the most vulnerable provinces uh, and territories now, the three territories have all signed, who have signed on to this deal that they know will mean that they cannot deliver their public health care services. And several of the provinces and territories, certainly the remaining ones, who I should say represent 90% of the population. So the people who have, the provinces and territories, the provinces, sorry, only, who have not signed this deal represent 90% of the population. They've issued a letter saying that we just can't accept, you know, the GDP deal because we wouldn't be able to continue delivering public health care. And we've seen both Saskatchewan and Nunavut, who have signed bilateral deals, also sign this joint statement saying, we can't afford it, but we're also, we can't say no because there's new money on the table and you told us if we didn't accept it now, that money would go away too. Um, so even though they've signed a deal, they're still sending out a joint letter saying we're not happy with this. This is not going to be enough and we're going to have to make cuts somewhere. Yeah, it seems like just sort of a you know climate of austerity. You know, If you look at Saskatchewan, that's a government that's enforcing a lot of austerity and then going back and complaining about austerity at the federal level. <laughs> in terms of revenues yeah i mean it's 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 part of this broader i think revenue crisis that that we're facing and and the blame just sort of goes from one to the other right right and and you know we've also chosen part of this revenue crisis right i mean there are ways that we get, that we could collect more money that we choose not to do so you know when they say that there is no money well there is and we could have more if we needed it but it's a choice it's a political choice that's been made Exactly. But it's presented as a kind of, you know, this as cold numbers rather than rather than politics. So what's right. Exactly. What's the vision then? Like, you know, what's the way what's the way to fight this? What's the vision um, of an expanded public Medicare system? And, and how can we talk about it in a way that builds broad sort of popular support and in a way that maybe isn't just a kind of, you know, reactive battle to save um, something that's already inadequate. 
Yeah. So, I mean, what we really want um, to do is to continue building our public health care system. So we know um, that it's the that it's the best way, it's the highest quality way to deliver healthcare services, and it saves everybody money. It saves money out of pocket, it saves government's money, um, and it provides everybody the care that they need. So it is a good system. And when people say, you know, we need to be innovative and privatize more, well, we used to have a private system. The innovation is that we went public, and we happen to be you know, a, a country that did it relatively early um, in comparison to the U.S., for instance. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. So you mentioned earlier that we were 70-30, so 70% public health care services and 30% of it's private. And the Europe, the European average is 80-20. 80% is public and 20% is private. So continuing to expand public health care is absolutely the way to go. It saves us more money and it makes sure everybody has the care that they need. And we can look to other countries for ideas. I don't think that we want to follow another country completely. I think that there are failings with all the countries um, in their systems. But I think that you know, we can make a Canadian system that works for us um, by using examples elsewhere. So one of the big examples is a national public drug plan. We are the only country that has a universal healthcare system that doesn't include drugs. So people can go to the hospital and get the medication they need. But the moment they leave the hospital, they usually get a script in their hands and they need to go and they need to pay for that medication. And anywhere between 10 and 20% of Canadians are not filling their prescriptions because they can't afford them. And so they keep having to go back to the emergency room or into the hospital to get, the, to get access to the drugs that they need. It's a silly system. It doesn't work. It's failing Canadians. There's a much better way to do it. Um, a national public drug system would save us money out of pocket. It would save governments money. In fact, it's been calculated by Marc-Andre Gagnon, a health economist at Carleton University, that it would save $11 billion a year and everybody could access the drugs that they need. Um, so looking at those types of ways of expanding our system and making them more public, seniors care is the other area that I think is urgently needed. Uh, we need to look at how we're going to ensure that everybody can age with dignity. And that's not the case right now. Uh, as I said, there are some provinces where people are paying five to $6,000 a month to get seniors care. And more and more we're finding um, private beds becoming available, but, not, but at, the, um, at the deficit to the public beds. And so we're very concerned that people are just not going to have safe spaces and we want to see a national strategy on how to deal with that, but it requires federal leadership, and we're really lacking that right now. The federal government doesn't want to get involved, uh, and that leaves Canadians in a very difficult position. In conversations in the media, and just generally kind of in the zeitgeist, you know, the, the argument constantly comes up. The system that we have is clearly inadequate, and there's problems, and you have, problems and you have the waiting list and all of that. How do you counter that argument in a better way than the private sector, which is going to say, you know, these are the problems, we have the solutions to them, even though they, you know, even though we know they might not, but it's, they can easily point to big flaws in the public system. Sure. And I, th you know, I don't think the system is inadequate. I think there definitely are areas that we can improve on. Um, but when it comes to getting care, people get care. Uh, they're triaged, you know, so those who need the care the most get it first. That does mean that sometimes people wait longer and that's not ideal. Um, but it's certainly, you know, it is a way that we ensure that everybody has coverage. I think when we look at systems that don't do that, I mean, it's so easy just to point south of the border and look at what's happening in the United States um, and looking at their inability to access care and the really high rates. They pay twice 
um, per, per capita that we pay for private care that doesn't cover everybody. Um, so we know that the public system is more efficient. Uh, we know that it delivers better care. We know that in countries where, you know, they may be ranked as having uh, better access to care, that they are more public than we are. So there is a solution there. Um, we're looking at those results all the time. And, and the solution is really obvious that we need more investment in public health care. It'll save us money and it'll ensure everybody gets what they need. So, and, and the idea that, you know, that only innovation can only happen in the private system is really ridiculous. We see, we see lots of innovation happening in the public system all the time, but that needs to be shared. And that's something that we're lacking right now. Everybody sort of works in silos and the provinces and territories are working in silos and there's no table that they should be all sitting at. I mean, the health accord table would be the ideal space for that, but we've gone to these bilateral deals. And so we're really missing an opportunity to look at best practices happening across the country, scaling those up and sending them out um, and sharing that information. And so we examine these little silos and where it works well, but getting that information out there, having other provinces and territories implement those practices uh, is just not happening. And I think that that's a major failing. That was Adrian Szymlicki, National Coordinator of the Canadian Health Coalition. That's all for this week. Until next time.